It is good to be back with you. Um, I should say after last night, it's good to be anywhere. My name is Jeremy Grinnell. I've I had the privilege of uh, speaking here half a dozen times over the last couple of years. Uh, just to help you kind of reframe my face a little bit, I've, I've spoken in the past about, uh, about my journey with depression, uh, how clinical depression and the stupid choices that came out of it uh, catapulted me out of my own pastoral ministry and out of my professorship and other things. And thank goodness I'm not here to talk about that today. But if, uh, if that, a rehearsal of that would be beneficial or helpful to any of you, you can certainly, uh, I'll refer you to my blog podcast at homiliesofsanthazanus.com. Um, yes, Santazanus is what you think it is, because sometimes you're a saint and sometimes you're an ass, and uh, sometimes we're both. Um, you are not in the middle of a series or anything like that right now, so when uh, Pastor Brian said, Jeremy, would you be willing to come and speak, we, we talked a little bit, and with, with Pastor David as well, and uh, we decided that I would tell you a story, uh, not one of my own stories, but uh, one of Jesus' stories, one of the parables. We would spend a little time rehearsing a parable from Matthew chapter 20, variously called the uh, parable of the workers' wages, or the parable of the workers in the vineyard, or the vineyard workers, various things. Uh, Jesus, if you know anything about his teaching, Jesus tended to talk, tended to speak in stories. He has some didactic sections like the Sermon on the Mount where he kind of goes after it, but a lot of the time it's wrapped up in story. But Jesus was not like Aesop, you know, his fables, animal fables. Uh, the Gospels, the four Gospels are not merely a collection of poignant but rather random stories by Jesus. Rather, just about every one of the stories that Jesus told had an occasion. They were flowing out of a question that was asked, or a circumstance, an event, or something. And, and this one is no different. So if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying in this parable, we actually have to back up into Matthew chapter 19 to look at the, uh, the circumstance that brought it out. In Matthew chapter 19, we actually find a... Uh, a situation, an event that's more well-known than the parable even. It's a story of a, a rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks him a, a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We're not giving his name, he's just some young dude. And he and Jesus go back and forth a bit. I won't bore you with those details, but uh, they sort of end with Jesus making a, a demand of him, unexpected demand for him to go and get rid of all of his material wealth, give it to the poor, and come follow me. I want you to understand this expectation of, you Jesus, of Jesus that he places on this man is, is, is not unique. It's not something Jesus sort of reserved for the wealthy. It's actually the demand that Jesus made of every one of his disciples, if you think about it. I mean, the very apostle who's recording this, Matthew, what was he doing when Jesus found him? He was sitting in the tax collector's booth. That was his day job. He worked for the IRS. And what was Jesus' word to him? Up, oh, leave your tax booth, follow me. Peter, James, and John, his word to them, well, you're, you're fishermen, well, leave the nets, leave them here, laying on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, leave your father standing there with the nets going, what, and come follow me. In many ways, it's Jesus' general and first command to a new disciple, to look at what's in your hands right now. What are you, what are you clutching? What are you grasping? Well, drop it. Come follow me. Now, truthfully, we could end the service right now on that question, couldn't we? 
You're dismissed. Isn't that nice? No, no, I'm sorry. You're not going to get away. No, I've got more to say. But honestly, that question, it's a penetrating question. What prevents you from following Jesus? What is it you hold in your hand right now? What's taking up all your bandwidth? What, what, what occupation? What relationship? What possession? What fear? What skepticism? What baggage? What sorrow or hurt or regret or shame? What stands like a great big roadblock in your path? What is it? Well, for heaven's sake, and I mean that, let it go. We know that we cannot take all luggage on all trips. Surely there is a journey that may require of you your hand or your eye or even your very life, and it may still be the right journey, the journey that will change everything. Well, this is the journey that Jesus offers. You follow me, like, like Dr. Who himself. He has places he wants to take you, worlds he wants you to see. This kingdom, like the TARDIS, is bigger on the inside than it is on the out, but only if you will let go. And I imagine some of you, upon hearing such a generous and gracious invitation, will do as this young man did and walk away grieved because he had too much stuff to lose. Well, I have come to believe that if you have so much to lose that you cannot take the journey that will lead to life, You've got too much stuff. Or you've been collecting the wrong things. This is why Jesus makes that very memorable comment at this point. This is the point where he says it. That, point, that comment about the camel going through the needle's eye, you have to start with the hoof. Being easier than the wealthy man with much to lose gaining heaven. The answer to that young man is simply this, eternal life, the kingdom of God, is not attained through the things that we acquire, but rather through the things that we are willing to release. Now, you can take that idea as literally or as metaphorically as you want. I don't care. It makes no difference. If you give it its head... It will have its way with you, and nothing will ever be the same. But understandably, it is a fact that worried the disciples. So Peter, of course it was Peter, Peter steps up to Jesus and reminds him. He says, well, unlike that guy, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Or if I can translate that, what are we going to get? We, unlike this guy, we did what you said. Good old Peter. He's so honest. I envy Peter's candor sometimes, his ability to say what we're all thinking, but we're too afraid of looking like the fool. That's not a concern that ever entered Peter's head. 
He didn't mind looking the fool. Good for him. Well, Jesus' reply was kind of long and directed at the disciples. We won't, don't need to get into all of it, but in essence, yes, yes, don't worry. It's all going to work out. You'll be fine. But, but don't get it into your head that the kingdom I'm talking about here is really like that. It's not a percentage-based pay scale. It's not an hourly wage. There's no stock options to leverage. In fact, in this kingdom, says Jesus, you will find that the first, or often last, and the last will be first, and from that platform, he launches into the story that I'm about to... I told you all of that to, to tell you this. The disciples, this story that Jesus is about to tell is going to be their undoing. And if we have ears to hear, ours too. Matthew is the only one of the, uh, the four gospel writers, the four accounts of Jesus' life, to include this parable. Mark tells the story of, the, of that rich young man, but it doesn't include the parable. It happens very light, late in Jesus' ministry. In fact, following this, both in Matthew and Mark, the very next verses is Jesus telling his disciples, oh, by the way, it's time for me to go to Jerusalem and die. Uh, so this is really happening at Jesus' 11th hour when he says to the disciples here at the beginning of chapter 20, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, lord of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, sometimes when Jesus told stories, they were fantastical, you know, filled with otherworldly kinds of things, rich man and Lazarus and great chasms between heaven and hell and fire. And, 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 and sometimes his parables were like that, but sometimes they were very earthy. They came out of like the common experience of everyone that was there. This would have been one of those, true to first century Israel. So for all the first century Jews in the room, you will understand this parable perfectly. For the rest of us, it's going to require a little bit of translation because... It takes place during the grape harvest. So, if there's any grape growers in the room, this is for you. For the rest of us, I had to do a little research. You have to learn a little about it. The vineyards are ready to be picked in this story. Now, as I understand, the, uh, the grape harvest in Palestine during those days happened near the end of September. So, we're actually just historically, providentially, coming into that season where they would have begun to think about the harvesting of the grapes. And they really found themselves you know, kind of between the Scylla and the Charybdis of, of having good grapes versus bad weather. You know what early September can be like. You remember last night, right? Okay. Where you want, to, you want the grapes to stay on the vine as long as possible so they can soak up all the goodness and do their thing, but not so long that those latter heavy rains come and spoil and change them and do whatever they do to grapes. That is bad. So the goal is to wait, 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 wait as long as you can and then work as hard as you can to get it done. Now this landowner, certainly if he is a landowner and he has fields, he's got servants of his own, people who are permanently attached to his house who would help you know, work farm hands, that sort of thing. But during the grape harvest, they're not enough. He needs more more laborers. So it's the beginning of the Jewish day when this parable picks up, which is 6 a.m., more or less. His hired hands go off into the vineyard to begin the, the, the harvest. 
He knows they're not enough. He needs more working hands. What does he do? Well, he dials up manpower. No, he doesn't have that option. What does he do? He goes to the labor market. He goes to what like the farm market of the day, the marketplace. And here he finds able-bodied young men hanging around. Now, this seems odd to us. You have to remember, this is not like... It's not like when you go down to Centerline Mall and you see the teenagers hanging out and you think to yourself, the lazy bums, why don't they get a job? Not like that. This is actually the place where the labor exchange kind of happened, okay, where you would obtain day work, uh, workers for the day. The marketplace was not filled with you know, lazy sluggards. That's not why they were there at all. They were merely poor. They owned no land. They were not attached permanently to any house. If they did not work for the day, they did not eat. They were at the mercy of the economy. They filled the sort of daily temp jobs that were out there, and they were the most needy of people. A day's work for a day's wage. A one-day contract with no promise of renewal tomorrow. They have no savings. There is no welfare, no social safety net. They don't have any options, which is why, incidentally, the Old Testament law back in Deuteronomy, the, the law of Moses, actually commanded the landowners in Israel to pay their day laborers at the end of every day. Nothing, you know, this I'll, you know, I'll pay you a hamburger on Tuesday for whatever. No, you can't like every two weeks or however you get paid. You paid at the end of the day because they needed that dollar, that denarius, the Roman day wage coin, they needed that coin to take immediately to the market and buy their food for that night. That's how close to poverty, that's how close to subsistence they lived. Did anyone in the room feel blessed? Yeah. So this is the situation with these, with these people. Each day they come to the market with their tools in their hands, praying to be hired so that they can eat. So, of course, these, these men he finds, they agree, how can they not, and they go off to the vineyard to, uh, to work. Now, from this point, the parable begins to unfold like a, like a Kiefer Sutherland episode of 24. You know, it's like the clock begins to tick, 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 tick. It moves forward three hours. It's now 9 a.m., three hours into the workday, mid-morning. It's clear that the workers he has are insufficient, so back he goes to the labor market. He finds another group of men standing around, and he says to them, Go into the vineyard also, follow these other guys, and I will, what, pay you what is right. I'll give you what is fair, what is just. Well, anybody who can do basic math knows what this means. They've missed a quarter of the workday. Three quarters day's work, three quarters day's wage. It's only fair, right? Okay, but it's better than nothing. Off they go. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Sun goes to the top of the sky. It's now noon. 12 o'clock, the day is half done, work is still slow. Back to the market he goes, he needs more hands, finds another group of men hanging around, same deal. I will offer you what is fair, what is just. Well, it's half, half the day's gone, so obviously half the wage, right? But it's better than nothing. They can't turn it down, off they go. Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock moves forward. 3 p.m. now, only a quarter of the workday is left, three hours left. Landowner is still desperate enough to go back to the market, <laughs> and there are still workers desperate enough to be waiting there. He makes the same deal with them. Go, I will pay you fair wages. I don't know what you can buy on a quarter day's wage. What, a loaf of day old bread? Better than nothing. Off they go. Well, now as the clock moves forward again, coming now to 5 p.m., one hour left in the workday, the parable begins to take on a kind of surreal, Wes Anderson-like kind of feel to it. You understand what's going on, but you know it ain't quite right. One hour with the workday left, almost impossibly, the landowner goes back to the labor market and impossibly still finds men lingering about. I don't know, perhaps they're just 
They don't want to go home and face their family and say, no food tonight. One hour's work, a just wage offered. Well, I'm going to go hungry, but at least maybe I can buy some parched grain for the kids. And off they go. Tick-tock, tick-tock. The sun is descending in the western sky, dusk settling over the land. Long shadows are stretching themselves out over the vineyard. It is now 6 o'clock, and for some, it's been a very long day. They all come in now to get paid. Some are sweatier and wearier than others. Some have worked 12 hours in the heat. Some have worked only one. The foreman is having a conversation with the landowner over here. The foreman's kind of shaking his head. Turns around, approaches the workers now lined up like a military regiment, a bag of coins jingling invitingly in his hand. Will the workers who started at 5 p.m. please step forward to receive their pay? The foreman reaches into the bag and pulls out the Roman coin, the full denarius. And they receive their pay. A full day's pay for one hour of work. I'd I take that deal. There's food tonight. There's chicken tonight. Chicken tonight. And off they go to the market to buy their food. Well, the three o'clock shift, please step forward. They too receive the full day's wage for three hours of work. You can hear it up and down the line. It begins to buzz. They're whispering to each other, what's he doing? Maybe it's a mistake. Shut up. He doesn't realize it. Just put your hand out. You can imagine the thoughts of the hottest and sweatiest laborers, those who've been toiling for the full 12 hours. In fact, we're told this is what they're thinking. My goodness, he's giving denarii to them. We were there for 12 hours. What are we going to get? Two, three, four? I'm going to fund my 401k for the year. Well, the 12 o'clock workers step forward. The 9 o'clock a.m. workers step forward, and they each receive the denarius. Wait a minute, wait a minute. It's beginning to sink in. The pay's not getting more. It's staying the same. Well, the 6 a.m. shift step forward. He reaches in the bag, and out comes the single denarius. That denarius which looked... So, like so much 12 hours ago, and now looks so inadequate, so insufficient compared to what others got. And they begin to complain. Hey, we worked the whole day. We stood in the heat. We bled. We sweat. Tears. The whole bit. The sun shone on us. I've got a sunburn. How come we get the same thing they got? It's not fair. Now, be honest with yourself. Put yourself in, the, in this situation. You feel it, right? You have to feel it. Certainly, in, in a day and age where we are very concerned about equal pay, je, you know, pay gaps and those kinds of things, in unjust, inequitable pay ought to land on us with some furor. Many a Facebook friend has been lost over less. Well, now it's time for the landowner to be shocked. And he, he says to them, friend. Why? Because he's just a nice guy. Friend. I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Well, take your pay and go. I want to give the last man who was hired the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious that I am generous? 
And then Jesus ends the parable repeating the line he opened it with, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. What are we to do with this? Parable's done. What's the Okay, nice story, Jesus. Now what? Well, I'll tell you first what I, I think things we must not do with this story. First of all, we must not turn this story into a saw for our own political and economic preferences. This story is neither a capitalist statement about the wealthy having the right to do what they wish with their own, nor is it a socialist statement about a guaranteed minimum income or justice for the poor or anything like that. These sorts of applications, as tempting as they may be, are actually going to work against us. They're going to gut the story of the thing it's really trying to do. That's a temptation we will always face anywhere with Jesus' stories. We have this strong temptation to want to do something with them, to make them useful. When in reality, Jesus is telling them because the opposite is the case. They're supposed to do something to us. Again, this may be the first thing we have to release if we want to hear. Our need to make the story be what we want it to be. Because we have the nasty habit, as we will learn with the disciples, of insulating ourselves against Jesus' true point. Remember, this parable, why did Jesus tell it? How does it begin? The kingdom of God is like. Specifically, how is it attained or entered? One further thing we, have to, we mustn't do is we don't want to put this story, this parable in competition with the rest of Jesus' parables. Specifically, Jesus has lots of parables about how important good, faithful stewardship actually is. This is not a story about cheap grace. Oh, live as you please, do as you want, as long as you manage to slide in at the last minute, don't worry, you'll get the same as everybody else, so live how you want. No, 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 no. There are too many warnings in Jesus' parables about, about faithless stewards, about foolish bridesmaids, about, about stingy barn owners, Things that, stories that tell us that the choices that we make in this life as we go along over the course of our whole life do, in fact, matter both in this world and in the world that is to come. And we must not unsay any of that in our attempt to understand this. What you have here in this parable is, is really just the other side of that same coin. You have here an example of another class, another set of Jesus' parables that forces us to ask this question. What is our reaction, our real reaction, down in the depths, in the secret heart, what is our real reaction to God's generosity? How do we really feel about a shepherd who would leave 99 obedient sheep for the sake of one idiot sheep who couldn't follow directions and got itself lost? How do we really feel about a father who would embrace the idiot son who wasted all of his, his hard earnings? Is this this prodigal really as welcome in this house as the faithful son who never left? A parable like this will, will ask us many disturbing questions. 
if we will contemplate it. It provokes us in many ways. And it is an excellent skill to develop when you are trying to understand the Bible, to linger over what provokes you, because that's probably the part you need to hear. I would like to ask you to quietly consider two such thoughts from the parable today. And I mean this. You may not have an answer for them now. That's fine. But I would like you to take two questions with you into this week, into your, into your Labor Day celebrations, into the store, the office, the school, wherever to the beach, wherever you frequent. Chew on them. Ask God to open our eyes and change our hearts slowly and gently as we move about in the world that we may not be the same people we have always been. And question number one is this. How do we respond? Really, how do we really respond to latecomers in God's kingdom? I mean, who now, if they were to walk in next week to Frontline, If they were the next person next week to get baptized here on this stage tomorrow, would you most resent being here? Be specific now. Think of the face. Who is he? What's her name? The person who would make you just a little bit indignant to see them arriving in the kingdom. Who least deserves to be here? Well, if you can't think of a particular person, think of a particular kind of person. What do they look like? What kind of person most offends your sensibilities? Who does your Christianity make you feel safest from? Relieved that you don't have to interact with because you come to Frontline. And what if they walked in next Sunday? Don't say that there isn't anyone. If you are, this is actually why I'm asking you to contemplate it, to go home, to think about it. I'd invite you, scroll through your Facebook feed. God will show you. Whose posts tick you off the most? I don't know, because they're filled with incessant political nonsense or, or maybe weak-willed whining at their troubled lot in life or, or because they, they, they Instagram like they've got it all together but you know their life is really a wreck. Or simply because you feel uncomfortable because their manner of life just gives you the jibblies. Who is it? Do you see that that is exactly the person or the sort of person that Jesus is pressing us on? Nobody would be more offensive to a person who's worked 12 hours in the vineyard than a person who showed up for one hour and got the same wage. I can't think of a more offensive person to, that, to them. So who is it for us? Do we resent that, that God is really that generous? That God would make out of that sort of person a special triumph? I mean, it's almost as if, it's almost as if God is trying to snub us. 
by intentionally seeking out those people we find most offensive. You sing about the reckless love of God. Ha! Nonsense. It's not reckless. It's strategic. Positively strategic. We need a worship song about the perverse delight that God takes in winning over the most repellent, annoying, distasteful, and embarrassing people we know. That God insists on making a special conquest out of the very people we would be least likely to invite to our Labor Day celebration because we know they would just wreck the whole thing. Now, I hope, I hope you don't take that last diatribe too seriously. I hope you hear the tongue-in-cheek in it. Because I think we all recognize, we all know that that person who ticks us off on Facebook most, we also tend to tick off, right? So there's a, there's a two-way street about it. But it does raise a little reminder, a second point in the conversation about this parable, which may be less convicting but just as important. Who are the real latecomers in God's kingdom? I mean, who are they really? Do you see what we accidentally, inadvertently did as we were approaching this parable? We placed ourselves without really any consideration in the role of the 6 a.m. workers. Did you even realize we did that? Maybe not, because that's our default setting when we come to Jesus' parables. We always put ourselves in the role of the people that are already. We always put ourselves in the role of the 99 that never left or the, the son who didn't go. Of course, it has to be. We are the ones who are in church, right? So we must be talking about those who have not yet come. So that's where we put ourselves. If I can say it cynically, we don't want to be thought of as lost, lazy, or undeserving. In fact, I would, I would rather be on the receiving end of Jesus' critique and maintain my illusion of status than to admit I'm actually lost. I would rather be conde condemned and maintain my pride of place than to assume the distasteful role in the story that I actually inhabit and receive mercy. That's the scandal of Jesus' parables. They turn us over and inside out because the truth is we're not the 99. We're not the faithful son. And we're surely not the 6 a.m. workers. In fact, a moment's thought, reflection, should remind you that no Christian living 2,000 years after Jesus gave this parable to the original disciples can take any pride in being first. <laughs> I mean, who am I compared to Moses or David or, or Peter? Heck, even compared to the great saints of the church, what spiritual pedigree do I have compared to Augustine or Catherine of Siena? Martin Luther, Brother Lawrence, Jonathan Edwards. How would I even manage to compare my own shabby spirituality to, to even others in this room? 
Don't you see what a, what a fool's game it is to demand that God treat us as we ought to be treated? None of us. None of us will receive our just desserts. Thank God. Augustine himself wrote 1,500 years ago in his own sermon on this passage. Just listen to it. It's dense. In the end of the world, all Christians, called as it were at the 11th hour, will receive with the rest the blessedness of that resurrection. All will receive together. But consider those first men, you know, the, the Abrahams, the Moseses, those guys. Consider those first men. How, how, after how long a time do they receive it? If then those first receive after a long time, we after a short time, though we all receive together, yet we seem to have received first because our hire will not tarry long in coming. It doesn't matter if you understood all that or not. Consider this. Could Augustine himself have imagined that more than 1,500 years would elapse? 1,500 years. That, that's longer than a lot of you have been alive. And yet there would still be poor workmen being called into the field at the 11th hour. St. Paul himself, chief of sinners, Johnny, come lately, if ever there was one who told us that it is by grace we have been saved. Through faith, that this salvation is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of your works, nobody can boast. So my friends, don't begrudge another their journey. You do not know what burdens inhibit their travels. You do not know what struggles they have, what things they are being asked to lay down and have not yet found the strength to do so. Some enter the kingdom in an hour. Some barely manage to enter it in a lifetime. But if you're ever tempted to look around and say to yourself, my goodness, I guess they'll take anybody here. Realize that you have inadvertently spoken a great truth. Yes, yes they will. And the evidence for this is that once upon a time, they took me. Look. Okay.